Greetings in Jesus' name this morning. I'm going to continue my series in the life of Joseph. It seems like it's been a long time since I spoke last, because partly because it has been, so I kind of forget even where I left off. But we're going to pick up here in chapter 45 of Genesis. I'm going to read the first 15 verses of Genesis chapter 45. Then Joseph could not restrain himself before all those who stood by him, and he cried out, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud, and the Egyptians in the house of Pharaoh heard it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Does my father still live? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed in his presence. And and Joseph said to his brothers, Please come near to me. So they came near. Then he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. But now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For these two years the famine has been in the land, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting, and God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh, the lord of all his house, and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near to me, you and your children, your children's children, your flocks and your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, lest you and your household and all that you have come to poverty, for there is still five years of famine. And behold, your eyes and the eyes of my brother Benjamin shall... In the eyes of my brother Benjamin, see that in my mouth that speak to you, so you shall tell my father of all my glory in Egypt, and of all that you have seen, and you shall hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept on his neck. Moreover, he kissed all his brothers and wept over them, and after that his brothers talked with him. This is a very emotional time of Joseph's life. Where we left off last time, Judah had just pleaded with Joseph that he could be a place, step in place of Benjamin and take the punishment that was sent for Benjamin, that he could take place of that and stay. And now Joseph is revealing himself to him. And these first 15 verses, Joseph did all the talking until we got to verse 15. Verse 3 says, that Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. And his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed in his presence. This morning, I guess I will just use these 15 verses as a text, but really I'd like to point out, um, I guess maybe I could entitle the sermon this morning is guilt. Why could these brothers not speak? I think it's because of the guilt that has been built up in their lives of what they did to Joseph all these years. 
Have we ever had anyone say, I am Joseph to us? When we know that we did not want to face Joseph. Do we try avoiding people because we don't want to face them because guilt that we have in our lives to them? And here they are, not knowing who is in front of them. All the things they faced from this man in power they thought was just an Egyptian ruler, when all along it was their brother Joseph. And I don't know, is the reason they couldn't answer him? Was it because of all the guilt that they've bottled up for these 20-some years? Maybe it was also that they realized that if this isn't just Joseph, this is a man that has power over their life and over their death. He could seek revenge on them right whenever he wanted to because he had power over them. And I think that the guilt struck fear in their hearts and terror. And they were left speechless. They didn't know how to respond. But yet Joseph said again in verse 4, I am Joseph, your brother. I'm not just Joseph, I'm your brother Joseph. You know that guy that you sold into Egypt? I'm, I'm him. That's, that's who I am. But I think we look in verse 5, 7, and 8 are probably the most comforting words that these brothers could have heard. In verse 5 said, Joseph said, do not, be, do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. Don't be angry with yourselves. Verse 7, he said, And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Verse 8, So now it was not you who sent me and to save... Here, but God. It was God that sent him. And if we even move to Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, probably some of the most famous words that Joseph ever spoke. He told his brothers, says, You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. So here they were, the guilt that they faced for these 20 years left them speechless. Proverbs 28, verse 13. You can turn to it if you want. I'm just going to quote it here. It says, He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. I believe that these brothers were living in those 20 years of covering their sins. Um, you can say, well, maybe they prospered, maybe they didn't. I think they could have prospered a whole lot more had they been confessing their sins. So as I speak on guilt and we look in the life of Joseph's brother, we can see that guilt can affect us in more, one, more than one way. People may say, well, it will only affect me. We can see in the life of Joseph that it didn't just affect the brothers, it affected the whole family. And I'd like to look at two other instances in the Bible, and it's not just related to these two, obviously, where guilt can affect not just you, and not just your family, it may affect your 
church. It may affect your whole nation. Um, turn with me to Joshua. For the sake of time, I'm not going to read this whole text, but turn with me to Joshua 7. This is the account of Achan. Actually, before we turn to Joshua 7, turn to Joshua 6, which is close by. I'd like to read verses 18 and 19 in Joshua chapter 6. And this is the command that they received when they were told to go destroy the city of Jericho. Joshua 6, verse 18 and 19. And you, by all means, abstain from the accursed things, lest you become accursed when you take of the accursed things. And make the camp of Israel a curse and trouble it. But all the silver and gold and vessels of bronze and iron are consecrated to the Lord. They shall come into the treasury of the Lord. So this was the command that they had, that they were not to take anything. They were to destroy everything. They were not supposed to take anything of the accursed things. And we know that Achan saw some things that he coveted, and he took them. Did this just affect Achan? No. Did it just affect his family? No. Did it affect the whole camp of Israel? Yes, it did. They suffered a mighty defeat. Achan could have confessed what he did right after that. But they drew lots. And the lots fell upon his tribe, his father's family, and to his family and to him. All the way down. And it wasn't until he got pinned basically against the wall that he confessed what he did. Looking at what Achan did, one aspect of sin's deception is that its promise, it promises a benefit that is just can't achieve. <laughs> we look at those things. What did Achan steal? Does anyone know what Achan stole? Silver and gold and a, and a really fancy robe. Now, what benefit did that have to Achan? He couldn't wear the robe. Everyone would have known where it came from. And let's say in our terms today that the gold and silver was cash, or maybe it was even a check. Couldn't really spend it, could he? All he did was hide it. So he had all these things. They were absolutely worthless to him because he couldn't spend it. He couldn't wear it. Yet he coveted it. He I know Bible story pictures show that a tent, and there's a big old bump in the middle of the tent. Maybe he even laid on that, so he had an uncomfortable sleeping position. Um, but it was really worthless to him. But yet, all this time, that guilt festered in his heart, and it destroyed his whole family. They had to destroy him to save the nation. How true Proverbs 28, 13 comes through. It says, he who covers his sins will not prosper. It was worthless to him. He could not prosper. But whoever confesses and forsakes him will have mercy. John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. If you want to turn to it. 
John 8, verses 31, 32. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. When we talk about guilt, there's only one way to be free of that guilt, and that is to let the truth be revealed. And God is ultimately the truth. Now, we have this, in the court system in America, there's a saying that you are innocent until proven guilty. Is that correct? It's not, right? Everyone that goes to a court of trial, someone's guilty, right? I mean, I, I like that the, the fact that you're innocent to proven guilty, but God's thing is, if you did it, you're guilty. Not until you're proven guilty. You're still guilty. In the court of law, you are innocent until proven guilty, but not in God's law. If you did something wrong, you're guilty. Not until it has to be proven. Because we can try hiding things from people, but we cannot hide things from God. God will see where you hid your treasures. The third person I'd like to look at is Saul. Turn with me to Acts chapter 9. I think one aspect of, of the life of Saul is the fact that while he was doing wrong, he actually thought he was doing what was right. Let's read the first 18 verses in chapter 9 of Acts. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogue of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Is it hard for you to kick against the goads? So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and he was three days without sight, and neither ate or drank. Now there was a certain disciple in Dam of Damascus named Ananias, and to him the Lord said in the vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas, one of, for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying, and in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hands on him, so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine, to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, 
Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. So Saul is on the road to Damascus. He's persecuting Christians. He thinks he's doing the right thing. Sometimes God has to deal with us the same way as he deals with Paul. Literally, he needs to maybe sometimes knock us down so that we have to pick ourselves up again. He knocked Saul down with a bright light. And when Saul is knocked down, he asks two very important questions. I think those same two questions are something we have to ask today. The first question he asks is found in verse 5. It says, Who are you, Lord? Now, Saul was persecuting Christians because he was serving the Lord, right? But he asked the question, Who are you, Lord? I believe suddenly that Paul realized that this was not the God that he knew and that this was not the God that he was serving. Why would he ask, who are you? Jesus' response was, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Saul knew who this Jesus was. I think when he was persecuting the Christians, they told him, who Jesus was. He just didn't listen to them. And I think immediately he understood who this Jesus was because he was persecuting Jesus. I think Saul had heard the testimony of many people, probably even heard the testimony of Stephen as he stood by when he was stoned. All the people that he arrested that were followers of the way. I believe witnessed to him about Jesus. And now he's asking, who are you, Lord? I think he suddenly understood that the Jesus that died on the cross was also the one that died for his sins. Is also the same Jesus that was resurrected three days later. He asked the second question. That second question is found in verse 6. And I think this is the ultimate in question that we need to ask. What do you want me to do? I think at this point, Paul had already surrendered his life. I think he was willing to do whatever God asked him to do. I think we see a question in a man that had surrendered his will to Jesus because he asked, what do you want me to do? It's as if Saul was saying, I've been leading my own life. I've been doing my own thing. And what I've been doing, I felt like I was doing right. But now I also understand that what I was doing was wrong. I was persecuting you. What do you want me to do now? And immediately Jesus tells him what he needs to do. So he goes on into Damascus. And we see that God has a chosen a man by the name of Ananias to speak to him. And even Ananias 
questions God for sending him. Lord, you know what this guy's doing. I don't want to go do that. But God says, I asked you to go. Go. And he has to be led by the hand because he can no longer see. God restores his sight and the rest is history. He sends him throughout the whole world. I mean, maybe not the whole world, but many different countries on many different missionary trips. And God has used him mightily. But the one thing I think that stood out to me is verse 16, he tell, God speaks to Anna and says, I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. So Saul, when he was persecuting Jesus, was, was persecuting those that followed Jesus. Now he is the one being persecuted because he's following Jesus. Because he asked, who are you, Lord? Because he says, what do you want me to do? So we can see that guilt will affect everyone. It doesn't just affect you. It may not just affect your own family. It can affect anyone around us that's associated with us. In closing, I'd like to just read a story. It's about a woman that took vacation to visit family in Ireland. Don't know the people. While she was there, she visited an uncle who was a shepherd. Now we read today that shepherds were looked down on in, in the Egyptians' time. Anyway, while she was visiting, visiting him, she walked into the barn and saw a young lamb with a leg in a splint. Ah, what happened, she wanted to know. Oh, said the old shepherd, he had a bad habit of running off, so yesterday I broke his leg. When the old man told her, she was appalled. Why on earth would you do that, she asked. Well, he said, the little guy had a bad habit of running off. Every time he would do that, he would be in danger. He could fall off the edge of a cliff, he could kill himself, or a wolf or some other predator could confine him and kill him and eat him. He was a stubborn little guy too. Every time he ran off, I would have to go find him. Then I would set him with the rest of the flock only to have him run off again. So I broke his leg. But that's not the end. After I broke his leg, I also mended it. I put a splint on it, all the while I was talking to him, comforting him, consoling him. Now, I have to carry water to him every day. Not only that, I have to feed him by hand. Also, as I do, I continue to talk to him and comfort him. By the time his leg heals, he will know my voice. He will know that it is I who takes care of him. He will come when I call him. He will stay with me no matter what. Now I will be able to lead him, and the rest of the sheep will follow him. This lamb will one day be the best sheep of the flock. Why? Because yesterday I broke his leg. In order to break his will, I had to break his leg. I believe that God sometimes has to knock us down so he can pick us up.